It's my last week here uh, with you for now. Uh, Pastor Matt's back next week with a new series. So this is our final message in the book of Habakkuk. And I hope it has been an encouragement to you. I hope you've been strengthened in your faith. And today we wrap up the series in chapter 3, where we'll talk about living by faith. So the question I want us to consider from the beginning of the message today is this. How should Christians view the disappointments and heartbreaks in life? How should Christians view the disappointments and heartbreaks in life? How should we think about living the Christian life when we experience what some have called the losses and crosses of life? You might be familiar with some of them, like being betrayed by friends, business gone nasty, unfulfilled dreams, heartbreak over a broken relationship, smoldering conflict, disappointing test results, hurtful words, miscarriages, infertility, losing money, death in the family, disease, sleepless nights, stress, and threats from enemies. Does believing in God really make a difference for those who are going through these situations? Yes. Does it really help in times like these to trust the Lord? Habakkuk has been our guide so far, and he is walking into some discouraging times himself. He's going into some heartbreak, because remember, we've already learned that the people of Judah are going to be judged by the people of Babylon, and they're going to be brutally disciplined by God. And then God is going to deal with the, uh, the, the people of Babylon, but he will deal with the people of Judah, and that will be a difficult season of 70 years for this nation. So he's going into some disappointing circumstances, to say the least. They're going to get captured and dragged to that foreign land under the discipline of God. And what's God's hope-filled promise to Habakkuk? It's a very short statement in chapter 2, verse 4, where we read, The righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of this book. That's the theme of this series. God says, trust me. Trust my promises. I am the promise-making, promise-keeping God. God says these things to a man who is about to be disappointed by the things that are going on around him. You say, that's great. So live by faith, can you? That's the answer. I can leave right now. But how do you live by faith? This passage will teach us three ways to live by faith under disappointing heartbreaks in life. So this morning, chapter 3 will teach us that when we cling to God by faith, He strengthens us for life's heartbreaks. When we cling to God by faith, He strengthens us by life's, in, heart, in life's heartbreaks. And I want to say that at the beginning here, um, I've been here since April, and it has been a privilege to get to know you people, and I'm blessed to be a pastor at this church. But I understand that in this text here, and in this theme, I'm, I'm knocking on your front door and I'm stepping right into your living room. This is an intrusive topic because a lot of you are going through difficult seasons of life. And so let that not discourage you, but let the Word of God speak to you today. And let it minister to your heart. So I ask that you would stand as we read Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 to 19, which is on page 786 of the Bibles in front of you. That's 786 in the Bible is in front of you. This is what Habakkuk 3 says. Verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigayanath. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? 
Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lip quiver, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray for him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being present here and now. And we ask that your word would renew our faith, strengthen us for the trials we're under, and guide us towards you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So just so we remember where we are in this book called Habakkuk, he has presented his problems to God in chapters 1 and 2, and he heard God's answers. He has a Q&A with God in the first two chapters, where he asks God perplexing questions. The problem of evil was on his mind, and God gave him some answers. Habakkuk now responds in chapter 3 in worship. He begins his worship by prayer, and then he finishes off by singing in chapter 19. His book started in the Valley of Despair, and now it finishes on the mountain peaks of praise. But from a human perspective, his situation is not getting any better. Rather, now he knows that really bad things are going to happen soon to his nation by some really bad people. But his response is to walk by faith, to live by faith in his God. And how will he do that? Well, the first thing is that he's going to walk by faith by worshiping and pleading with God. And that's what we see in verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigayath. The prophet, whose name means to embrace or to cling, has now heard a word from God, and he clings to God in prayer. The meaning of the word Shigayanath in verse 1 is unknown. It's a very hard one to say as well. But it may be a musical note that, that Habakkuk has noted, because as we see at the end of verse 19, this is to the choir master. So this is like a, a, like a journal entry, like a prayer, like a vision of God, all in one chapter. And so he starts off praying, and he ends off praising. But he's a man who is worshipping his God. He's in the presence of his God. He has heard from God. And now he's adoring him. So this prayer would probably be sung back in the people of Israel's day uh, by them. Habakkuk begins by addressing God with adoration. Then he goes to petition. He's heard of the judgment of Judah and Babylon in chapters 1 and 2. And his response is fear. He recognizes he's in the presence of God. God the Almighty, the Holy One. As we saw in chapter 2, verse 20, it said, The Lord is in his, his temple, let all the earth be silent before him. So he recognizes that he's in the presence of the Holy God, he's on holy ground, and he says this in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. 
O Lord, do I fear. Habakkuk is aware and humble in the presence of his God. And next we hear him respond to God with a humble petition. So he knows where he's at. He's in the presence of God. He's afraid as he approaches God. But he does ask a humble petition in chapter two, or in verse 2. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So this is faith at work here. John Calvin calls prayer a perpetual exercise of faith. So if you've seen a man of prayer or a woman of prayer, you've seen a woman of faith. Because prayer is an exercise of faith continually going on. And this is what he's doing. He's, he's asking a humble request of his God. And he says, revive it. Revive your work. He prays for revival. He pleads, don't completely destroy us. Do something again, God. Now, Habakkuk could probably look back and say, not too long ago under Josiah, there was a revival in the land. Revive it again, God. Do something. Be present with us again. Do something surprising. But then he also says, in wrath, remember mercy. He makes the plea, but he understands God's plan. He understands it's his will to bring about Babylon, to judge the nation of, his, of Judah. And so he understands that, but he says, okay, when you're going to bring your wrath, please remember mercy. Remember mercy. Remember that you are the God who revealed yourself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. By the way, as a side note, for those of you that ever had conversations with people that say the God of the Old Testament is so mean, He's such a mean God. Take them to Exodus 34, verses 6 to 7. And remember that God revealed himself to Moses as a God that was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Those attributes of God were presented in the Old Testament. He is not simply angry. He is a God that is beyond us, but he is a God of grace and mercy. And you see that from Genesis chapter 3 all the way out through the Bible, showing mercy to his people. So this is what Habakkuk asked for. He asked, remember mercy, God. Though we are going to experience your discipline for 70 years, please don't forget to be merciful to us. You may have heard the expression, when you can't see God's hand, trust his heart. You heard that? This is the way Habakkuk is approaching this. He's going to go through some dark days, but he's going to trust the heart of his God. And he pleads for this God to show mercy to his people. That's a bold petition, a bold prayer. Habakkuk knows that they're on the brink of ruin. And his prayer is now going to usher him into the very intense and joy-producing presence of God. He's going to have a meeting with God now. So, he knows he's in the presence of God. He responds by faith and petition and worship and prayer. And then God meets with him. God comes down, as it were, and says, You sought me. You have come for me. You will get me. I will show myself to you. So verses 3 through 15 are going to be this meeting with God. It's going to be an extended time of, of uh, uh, this passage. But let me say before we dig into this passage, um, I had a difficulty interpreting it this week. Uh, uh, so as a preacher, a lot of the work is done in studying the text, but then also to, to understand the context of where we're at today and also to where we're at in the Bible day. So a hard part was to understand what this 3 through 15, verses 3 through 15 was. And the reason it was hard is because there's two different perspectives on it. The first perspective is this, that 3 through 15 is a poem from Habakkuk where he recalls the events in the history of Israel, and records a historic hymn about God's acts. So, that's the first view. The second view is that this passage is a theophany, a vision of God, where, where Habakkuk is actually seeing God. And it's recorded, uh, the, the backing for this is chapter 2, verse 2, God told him to record a vision or a revelation. Okay? So those are the two perspectives, and it was Thursday night, and I still didn't know where I landed on this thing. So I was having a harder time than usual on this text, and I thought it was actually going to be an easier chapter, because it was a prayer. 
But uh, sure enough, it was not, and I, I thank you for your prayers because God seems to have helped me on this. Here's where I've concluded. Um, I don't see the poem and the appearance as being mutually exclusive. I actually don't see the reason for picking a side. So I see that this can actually be a vision of God, where Habakkuk, just like Nahum, just like other prophets, just like Isaiah, actually meets the Lord and actually sees him. But I also think that it could be a time where he's recording things that are past. So I don't find that as a big problem. And so that's how I'm going to approach this text today. I'm going to say that it's, it's both woven together. It's a vision that Habakkuk gets of God, a theophany, if you will, and it's also this historic hymn where he's recalling events at the same time. So that's where I've concluded. Um, if you don't agree with me, that's fine, but that's just the perspective that I'm taking today. Okay. So in this chapter, I think Habakkuk sees this vision and records what it was like to meet with God, and he recalls the events of last generations and, and former years, and they actually strengthen his faith. They bring him back to the place of praise. So, um, that was a little aside. That's how I'm going to approach these verses. But how does God, how does God respond to Habakkuk's petition in verse 2? He draws near, he comes close, and he gives Habakkuk a glimpse of his awesome glory. Look at verse 3. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Habakkuk is reminded, either by a vision or by memory, of the Holy God, who came with power, ushering his people into the Promised Land. This event is mentioned and recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 33. You don't need to go there, I'll just read it. It's just two verses. This is what it records of this event. It says this, Deuteronomy. This is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai, and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. So Moses is exhorting the people of God before he dies, and he's recalling this event, and so it appears that Habakkuk is doing the same. He's recalling this amazing mountain peak experience where God delivered his people. It also says Selah in that verse, which appears to be a musical note, giving this kind of a hymn or a song feel. It means to lift up, either to instruct the worship leaders to lift up their eyes, or to take a moment to consider what they've just heard. But his vision continues in verse 3. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. This is what Habakkuk is seeing in these verses. The earth is God's arena for praise. The word splendor is translated in a few different ways in the Old Testament. Sometimes it means it's translated glory, sometimes honor, sometimes majesty. It is a term used of an imposing form or presence of grandeur. God is imposing his splendor on the heavens. He's saying, I'm bringing it and it's going to fill the heavens. I'm going to impose my glory upon my creation. And the earth is erupting with praise at this God. Must have been quite the sight. Can you imagine Habakkuk? And is it doing anything for your current faith? I think it was strengthening Habakkuk. And I think it's meant to do the same for us. It seems like the prophet is grasping for words as he gets to verse 4. And it's only four verses in. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Seems like you can't put the language together to describe the awesomeness of this God. And that's certainly the way it is. We just don't even have the language to explain how majestic and beautiful and glorious this God is. But he's, he's working hard at it. And Habakkuk says God's brightness or his radiance was shining like light. 
power seems to be flashing from his hand, and this power and glory is still concealed. So if this is his concealed power, can you imagine when his power is revealed? So we're held back from seeing this God in all his power, because it would be too awesome for us to handle. When God reveals himself to us, we are to respond just like Habakkuk in worship. And looking to him by faith is how our hearts cling to him. That's how we respond. We trust him. We hope in him. We find joy in him. The prophet has just been describing God's appearance. Now he's about to start showing how God acts. Verse 5. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He is maybe recalling the judgment of the ten plagues in Egypt. God was active in judgment back in those days. God's presence and power makes the whole world shake. It seems that the prophet's eyes are being filled with God at this point. God's like, you're praying to me, you want to see me, I will show you myself and reveal myself to you. And his eyes are full and his heart, I'm sure, is full. He can't quite contain what he's seeing. And so in this meeting, I think Habakkuk's faith is being strengthened progressively as he sees the greatness and the glory of his God. And he recalls his acts. Verse 6, He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. This verse gives us a picture of God as exalted. He stands and measures the earth. He's a creator and the owner of his creation. He looks and he shakes the nations. Then the mountains run away from his awesome presence. It seems to be a lot to take in all at once. Uh, and that might be why after Habakkuk meets with God, in verse 16, that his, his heart is pounding, his lips were quivering, and his body is trembling in his presence. He's overwhelmed. Because he's talking about the everlasting God here. Meaning that God is not a created being. He's the creator and we are his creatures. And when creation is confronted with their creator, he blows into their presence and they shake. He looks and they bow. Whether people in nations or mountains, he looked and shook the nations. Verse 6 says. Uh, this reminds me of that popular book called uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. How many of you have uh, read this book? Okay, a good amount. Um, I didn't hear about it until I got saved. I heard about these Chronicles of Narnia. It's a, an amazing series. If you're not a Christian yet, it's a great series for you to consider reading. Um, in that book, the author describes this man, or this lion Aslan, as the king and the lord of the wood, where the setting of this book takes place. And he depicts Aslan as great and good, but a fearsome presence. So it seems contradiction, but or it seems contradictory, but it's not. It's a paradox that God is good and God is great and God is awesome in his presence. So this picture of Aslan, uh, he's he's uh, he's in Narnia. The people are the uh, the the people in, they're not people, but you know what I mean. The creatures in Narnia. <laughs> the the creatures in Narnia are living in fear of this. This white queen who's an evil queen and, and he tur she turns her enemies into stone and everybody's living in fear. And the great Aslan is the one who's the one that ought to be feared and the one that can take on the white queen. So let me read a scene from this book called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I think you'll see how Clive Staples Lewis, Clive Lewis is giving us a picture of the God who is described here in Habakkuk. So, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. Here's a scene from it. The creatures say, Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand? Never in my time or my, my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. 
He'll settle the white queen. He'll settle the white queen, all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone, too? Said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. They had, uh, the, the queen had turned Tumnus into stone. Uh, Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver, with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect her to do. No, no. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old hymn in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. But shall we see him? asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver, sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood, and the son of the great emperor, beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. <laughs> then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss, Mr. Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And isn't that a representation of our God? We ought to consider how we approach him because he is holy, but he's good. He's the king. And all who meet him understand that though he's good, his holy presence causes fear and awe, even on the earth. He's a good king, but his holiness is far from safe. After approaching this God, the prophet continues, verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. The prophet seems to be referring to Cushan, or Ethiopia, modern day Ethiopia. He seems to have seen the nation of Ethiopia suffer and Midian tremble at his holy power. Next, Habakkuk says, Were you angry at lifeless created things like rivers, seas, mountains, sun and moon? Were you angry at the creation, God? Obviously the answer is no, he's not angry at the creation. He was working salvation for his people in the events of nature. And nature would be his servant to bring about salvation to his people. Verse 8, Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers, or your indignation against the sea, when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? I think verses 8 through 15, which we're going to look at now at an extended time, the prophet is, is recalling the exodus, recalling the events when God parted the Red Sea, leaving, lead, leading his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. The event we call the Exodus is a climactic event in the Old Testament. Um, God brings judgment at the same time as bringing salvation. And that is a thread throughout the scripture. If you're interested in a study of this, look about salvation in the whole, in the, in the whole of scripture. Genesis 3, what happens? God brings about salvation to Adam and Eve by striking and killing two animals instead of them as a substitute. So through through striking these animals and covering Adam and Eve, there's death, there's judgment coming upon a substitute, and salvation coming upon others. And then obviously you can see that that, that thread is the gospel thread. That judgment comes to Jesus Christ on the cross. And at the cross is where we find our salvation. So we look back to this big event of the Exodus, 
where God's people are saved and judgment comes to the Egyptians who are the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. So we're going to look at this great historic event together. And I know that for those of you that have grown up in church, uh, this is something you already know. You already know the story of the Red Sea crossing. But may I challenge you, recalling events of God's salvation is not for Bible trivia, but it is for renewing our faith. It is not simply about knowledge and academic ascent, it is about filling our hearts with this awesome God. And so as we recall these events, and as our children are taught in Sunday school, it's not just, what do you know about the Exodus, as the teachers faithfully teach them about the Exodus, they're instructing them for faith, to stimulate faith in this good God. And so come at it this way, as we read this Exodus story, put yourself in this picture, put yourself in this story where God is working salvation for his people. So we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 14, and we're going to hear the story of salvation on page 56 in your Bibles. May your heart be stirred up to love this God and be encouraged that the God who saved in the past is the God who saves in the present and will save into the future. He is the Savior. So we're going to pick up in Exodus 14 and verse 10. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, oh by the way, Pharaoh has said for them to go, but now he's, he's getting, he's getting a, a change of heart. His heart is hardened, and he says, well, why do we let them go? And so he goes after Israel, okay? So he's, he's in this uh, dilemma, and now he's, he's full on going to try to kill the Israelites. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the, is, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the cloud of pillar moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel, and there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other at all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry, dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And, and the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon the chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. 
And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. Well, Christian, since this God is for us, who can be against us? This God is for us, still, today, the same God who worked this kind of seemingly impossible salvation for his people. God is glorious. He wants, he, he, he gets glory over people as he brings salvation for those who follow him. Now, how does this story of the Exodus make you feel today? This God is still actively working in salvation. The story is a picture of the greater Exodus. Not from slavery in Egypt, but for slavery in sin. That's the greater Exodus that this is pointing towards. The salvation that he's working today is through his son, Jesus Christ. Our enemy is after our souls, and he lies to us to try to get our eyes off Jesus. But the Jesus of the cross and resurrection is our exodus from sin. Stand firm, dear Christian, and see the salvation of the Lord. It is in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Renew your hope, renew your faith in him today. And for those of you that aren't Christians here and haven't turned to the Lord and experience this freedom, this exodus from slavery to sin, know that the Lord Jesus is able to save you. He is able. You aren't too far, far gone or too late to come. Today is the day of salvation, the word says, and if you trust in him today, it is your day of salvation. If you want to explore what it means to be saved, I'd love to talk to you. In fact, God willing, this September, my wife and I are going to lead a small group at our place, which is a small group just for those who have not yet been saved. Okay? It's just for those who have not yet become Christians, but you're looking to explore this thing a little bit. We're going to read through the Gospel of Mark together, and if you're a Christian here and you have someone that's exploring Jesus and wants to know more about this salvation, that'd be a great Bible study to come to. Um, the point of this Bible study is for us to Consider Jesus and what he has done for us in his salvation. Uh, keep your eyes on the bulletin for more details about that. I think it's going to start at the end of September, but I'm not too sure exactly when. So, these events that the prophet Habakkuk goes to are renewing his faith. And they're focusing on God as the mighty warrior who brings about salvation and goes to battle for the souls of his people. Let's uh, work through these verses together with this God in our mind. Verse 9. You strip, strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. God is pictured as a warrior fighting, for, fighting his enemies. Probably refers to God in anthropomorphic uh, terms, meaning human language that we can understand. He's... He's stripping the sheath from his bow, calling for many arrows. So he's getting, he's getting ready to take down his enemies. Um, the Selah there is to pause and think about this power, the vengeance that God is going to bring on his enemies, the enemies of God. And how often do we let our disappointments, our unfulfilled dreams in life, become our daily meditation? When this God is working salvation and our minds are drifting off him and we're not filling our minds with his salvation, what he's already done for us. We're too busy complaining about the things like the Israelites were 
complaining. Why did you bring us here? God is working salvation right before their eyes and they're complaining. Why did you bring us here to put graves? So uh, our minds need to be focused on this God and, and allow his word um, to, to change the way we think about our current situations. He's the God that works salvation. Our heartbreaks don't go unnoticed by him. Might he be saying that the righteous live by faith to us right here, right now, today? Fill our eyes with his greatness, and he will sustain us through the storm, even the one that we're in right now. He continues in verse 10, The, mo the mountains saw you and writhed, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hands on high. The appearance of God causes mountains to thrash about, and waters to rage. Verse 11. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. Nature is serving God and his purposes. This recalls the time in Joshua chapter 10 where the Lord fought for Israel and defeated the Amorites, tossing large hailstones from the sky, stopping the sun in the middle of the day answering Joshua's prayer for that. It's an extra long day. Uh, goes down in the history books. It's the longest day in history. Uh, it's a unique miracle that God did, stopping the courses of the natural cycle of nature. For his people, this is what this God does. Verse 12 refers to God's judgment. Verse 12, you march through the earth in fury. You thresh the nations in anger. God makes judgment, separating wheat from chaff. He brings judgment and salvation. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. God is Savior. God is the Savior of his people. He goes out in the world to save them and the King, the anointed. Here it's reference to Israel's king in the line of David, which would ultimately point to Jesus Christ, the king of kings. So God the Savior crushes the head of the wicked leaders of this world, which would mean the leaders of Babylon in, in that day specifically, but also in general evildoers, the house of the wicked, the people that do evil, and the ringleader of all, Satan himself. So God will crush the head of the evil leaders of our world. We saw that last week. It's hard not to hear echoes of uh, Genesis 3.15 here, right? Where we're told about the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. Remember that story, that, that Genesis 3 account? Though the serpent would strike the heel of Jesus, the seed of the woman, the Christ on the cross would crush the head of the serpent. Through his death, he would be bringing about salvation and victory over that evil Satan. The battle between good and evil is not an equal one. It's not that we're waiting for this thing to pan out to see if God's going to win at the end. That's not true at all. God puts evil to an end in an unmistakable victory at the end of history. God is a mighty warrior who is invincible, and he will crush the head of the serpent. Mm -hmm. It says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Mm -hmm. So be encouraged. This evil, evil will not continue to flourish forever. So that's the meaning that this prophet had with God. Um, verses 14 through 15. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me. Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. So this is the end, this is the poetic flourish of the song, the psalm, if you will, the prayer meeting. And God is seen as the one who will destroy the evildoers who are seeking to ruin the poor. So it's again, it's another illusion that God will set things right. It's another reminder that the injustices will not go undealt with. So, 
This is the passage. This is the prayer meeting with God. This is the vision of God that Habakkuk had. Now, what use is this passage for us today? I mean, God doesn't show up in my little office at home when I'm reading the Bible in secret, uh, in private, like this, right? He doesn't show up and, and show himself to be glorious visibly towards me. But this God is the same today. And he has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as we gaze at his word. But not only that, the, the, the church worship time, as we're praying and as we're seeking the Lord, as we're actually singing to God, that's a time of worship where we're meeting with the same God. We're approaching the same God around the table when we pray this afternoon with our families as we eat our meal. And when we read the scripture in private, this is the same God that we're dealing with. So may it be an encouragement for you to continue to meet with God and expect Him to show up just like He did to Habakkuk. Maybe not visibly, but He will fill your heart with praise as He does with this prophet. A few weeks ago, uh, the importance of meeting with God was stamped on my heart. I was doing a visitation and I went to visit our sister, Eleanor Allen, who if you walked in the front of the church today, she probably greeted you, and she has been greeting here for many, many years. Um, I went to her place for a visitation. That's one of the things that I get to do here as an associate pastor. I get to visit you lovely people. And I went there, and I went to Eleanor's house, and she greeted me, and then I went into her living room. and. Um, I saw that her Bible was open on her couch, and so I looked, out of curiosity, where she was reading in the Bible, and she was reading in the Psalms, and I think it was Psalm 85 or 86 that she was reading from. Then I sat down and I listened to her story, and uh, I don't know how many of you have heard her story, but I was moved. Um, I was actually almost on the brink of tears as I heard her story. And I thought, wow, this lady knows her God, she lives by faith, and she meets with Him daily. This really matters to her. This really matters. And I'll show you in a second what I mean. Uh, she's gone through a lot in her life. She's learned to cling to God. And God has faithfully held her close. And uh, her life and her Bible actually show that. She has these markings uh, next to the verses that mean something to her. And this is the chapter that I was looking at as I went to her place. And I saw all the markings and they're saying, praise the Lord. God is good every day. Only you, Lord. Only you, Lord God. And she's testifying and marking in her Bible how great and awesome her God is and has been to her. So we have people here in our church that can teach us about living by faith and walking by faith and meeting with God. If you find your devotions in the morning hard, talk to our sister Eleanor. She has learned to meet with God and uh, she can teach us all, myself included, about living by faith in this true and loving God. So... Um, if you're struggling in your faith, I encourage you to talk to Eleanor. Um, Eleanor, is it okay if they look at the Bible? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> so, um, that is just a, a, it was imprinted on my heart that, man, this is so important to meet with God, to reflect and commune with Him. It will hold us together when life is falling apart. Recall His faithfulness. Do not neglect the prayer time and the Bible reading in the morning, those ordinary things, this is where we meet God today. Now, watch how this meeting with God changes Habakkuk the prophet, changes his attitude and brings him to a place where he is once again praising God. And that is the last way, one of the last ways that we are able to grow in our faith. Verse 16, 
I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the Lord, for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk seems to be having a physical response to the awesome power and presence of his God. Similar to Isaiah and the other prophets that saw God, he's trembling in his holy presence. But he expresses his faith, saying he's going to quietly wait for the Lord to bring about what he saw, what he was going to do. He will trust God to deal with that one, though they'll invade Judah and bring about discipline. <coughs> so if you're perplexed with problems today, like Habakkuk was, and you're asking why and how long, God's greatest answer for you is not to solve your problems and relieve all your griefs, but to actually reveal himself to you. That is greater than uh, taking care of your issues. Filling your heart with his joy and his presence is one of the best things that could happen to you. And that's what he does with Habakkuk. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Withered fig trees meant God's judgment had come on this rebellious people. Bare vines, empty harvests, and dead animals meant no food or livelihood for God's people in the land. It was unmistakable, if you went around in that day, God's judgment had come. Jeremiah 8.13 says this, I will take away their harvest, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. God had given it. God is taking it away. He's withholding his blessing, and he's bringing about judgment. They're walking into a great depression as a nation, as a people. These were the things that they relied on for their daily lives. Produce, meats, the people were going to be cut off from God's gifts. What if God was to take some of your gifts away today? Some of my gifts away today? What would you do if you had no Wi Fi? <laughs> what would you do if you had no phone? What would you do if you lost your job? You lost your life savings? What if you lost your house or you couldn't go on vacation with your family this year? Would the absence of God's gifts drive you to God himself? That's Habakkuk's story. And I think that's the message of this last piece of his book. Listen to his faith on the brink of disaster. He knows judgment is coming. Here is an example of the righteous living by faith. Clinging to God as he braces himself for the storms that are coming. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Last week, some of you met my friend Johannes, who was here, um, and uh, he came back from Ethiopia. He's the man that told me about Jesus many, many years ago. And I spent about five days with him and his family. Uh, he came to church here, and uh, we had a little picnic afterwards. Uh, but as I was spending time with Johannes, I was deeply challenged. Um, he's now back in his native land, sharing the good news. And on our last night, after we got the kids to bed, it was late, because our kids are rambunctious, but we got our kids to bed, and we were excited to have this cheesecake that Kara, his wife, had made. And she was putting on the, uh, the raspberry sauce that she made, and I heard her say something quietly under her breath. She said, two more weeks. I said, two more weeks for what? And she said, humbly, humbly, two more weeks in the land of milk and honey. And that comment left me stunned. I thought, they've left it all. He has come and been a citizen of Canada. He knows the luxury and the joys of living in the West. He, know, he knows the, 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 the wonderful things that the country of Canada can offer him. And they've left it all to go back to the third world to tell their people about Jesus. And I was deeply challenged and convicted because at times for me to live is not Christ, but to live is comfort. 
To live is whatever I want in the moment. But he taught me that to live is Christ, and he has discovered that joy doesn't come from money or things or even desserts. Joy comes from the Lord who is our salvation. Amen. And that was pressed on me again last week. Listen to the Puritan Richard Baxter who, who wrote this book called The Saints Everlasting Rest about heaven. He says this, The most dangerous mistake that our souls are capable of is to take the creature for God and earth for heaven. We have done that in the West, haven't we? In our materialism, we have thought that this is heaven. We have forgot that we're pilgrims passing through to the new heavens and the new earth. Comforts, materialistic things are fading. When they go away, will we, will we rejoice in the God who is our salvation? Let's finish with verse 19. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with, strings in, with stringed instruments. He closes up his psalm, his praise, by trusting in God, who is his strength, who is going to guide him like a sure-footed deer on the mountaintops. Faith sings. Faith praises, because in God and in His presence there is fullness of joy. And our hearts actually want to express it. And I've only been here a few months, but I've had a few visitors that have come by, some of my friends, and almost each time that they come, they say, the Spirit seems to be at work here. And then they say, and the singing, the singing is something else. And I say, this is my response almost every time, I say, you know what? I think it's because they actually believe it. And faith expresses itself by praising God when we actually believe what we're saying. That is faith in action. That is how we're being renewed as we praise God, as we sing His praises. God is at work. Faith is rising. Now, some of you have gone through some deep waters in your life recently. And you may have gone through things that uh, some of us couldn't imagine going through. In our church, the suffering is probably not evenly distributed. But if there's people around you who you know are suffering in this time of their life, don't resent them for it. If the suffering doesn't seem to be going away in your timeline, let God stretch you and keep extending yourself to those who are going through suffering. Maybe we need to weep this afternoon with someone who needs us to weep with them. Maybe we need to serve someone and stretch ourselves a little further for those that are struggling. But faith at work clings to God. Because when we cling to God by faith, He strengthens us for life's heartbreaks. I commend this little book of Habakkuk to you in times of struggle, in times of storm, in times of trouble and perplexing issues. May you find strength in this little book. Let me close by a little story here. Back in the 1700s, there was a man named William Cooper. He had extreme depression, and he was institutionalized for a couple of years. He was a friend of John Newton, and he found comfort in writing hymns. Let me close by reading this hymn and comfort your hearts. It's based on this passage in Habakkuk chapter 3. It's called Sometimes a Light Surprises. Sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings. It is the Lord who rises with healing in his wings. When comforts are declining, he grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. In holy contemplation, we sweetly then pursue the theme of God's salvation and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrows, we cheerfully can say, let the, own, let the unknown tomorrow bring what it may. It can bring with it nothing, but he will bear us through. Who gives the lilies clothing will clothe his people too. Beneath the spreading heavens, 
No creature but is fed, and he who feeds the ravens will give his children bread. Though vine nor fig tree neither, their wanton fruit should bear. Though all the fields should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there. Yet God the same abiding, his praise shall tune my voice. For while in him confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, my friends. Again I say rejoice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It is pleasant. It is sweet. It is powerful. And Lord, we pray that you renew our faith today. In Jesus' name.